Mark chapter 2, and we're going to start reading at verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We've never seen anything like this. God, we're here in this room gathered with one another, yes? But we believe, many of us here believe, that you're here as well, and that you know the number of every hair on every head You know the turmoil within every uh, heart. You know the hopes and aspirations and fears. And you're able to speak in some miraculous way through the words of Holy Scripture to each one here. And we just pray that you would, and that you would invite us, many of us, to come to Jesus. Amen. Well, what do you make of Jesus? Uh, This is a question that I love to talk to people about friends and family and people that I happen to meet and minister to in the city. What do you make of Jesus? For me personally, it's come to be the most important question of my life. I was raised in what you might call a nominally Christian home. We kind of had a a religious substructure to the externals of our life. There wasn't much said about God in the home, but we went to uh, Sunday school and my dad was a Sunday school teacher. And I remember being in the, in the bottom of a United Church, it was called Basement, in Saskatchewan, in the heart of Canada, and seeing pictures of this uh, Caucasian Jesus with a long brown hair and birds flying around him and rainbows through the sky and thinking, who, who was this man, Jesus? My dad uh, taught that Sunday school. He led in the church council at the time and was a public leader in the church through a very difficult time of transition for it. By all accounts, externally, he and we as a wider family 
seemed to be a good Christian home. My mom was a nurse, and one day when my mom was lifting a patient within the hospital, uh, the patient uh, resisted and kind of squirmed uh, and, and kind of fought against her, and as a result, my mom hurt her back. And my mom couldn't return to work as a nurse, which really seemed to strike at her identity. And she began to descend into mental illness, manic depression, bipolar, they called it initially. And that resulted to my parents' marriage uh, falling apart and my dad eventually leaving uh, my mom. And this sent me on a spiritual search. The externals, our Christian externals of our life had crumbled. And I was left with this deep question, well, who really is Jesus then? And through a series of kind of extraordinary events, I came to the personal conviction that Jesus wasn't just some kind of religious idea, but that somehow he's a living person, alive today, who wanted a relationship with me and wants a relationship with you. But what do you make of this person, Jesus? As I go about and chat with folks, one of the views that I find most prominent is that he's a good teacher. He was a good teacher and a good leader with the emphasis on being, him being a good kind of ethical teacher whose teaching we, we can follow. The great uh, Scottish actor and author Billy Connolly uh, said, I can't believe in Christianity, but I think Jesus was a wonderful teacher. And Mahatma Gandhi said, Jesus, to me, is a great world teacher among others, Gandhi said. And wonderfully, and I think rightly, Gandhi drew a comparison between the teachings of Jesus and the, the manifestations of Christianity that he saw in his day in India. And he said, I see a difference between these two things. And if only you Christians would obey this Christ, your message would be so much more compelling. So in this view, Jesus is a teacher among other great teachers, maybe with a little bit of a political edge, like Gandhi, maybe like Martin Luther King, or like Mother Teresa. What do you make of him? And whatever you make of him really does determine your response to him. If he is a historical figure who taught good truths for humanity that we can learn from, just as we can learn from other teachers, great teachers of history, then of course we'll, we'll take what's good from Jesus and we'll take what's good from other teachers and we'll mix it up and that will be our response to, to Jesus. But what if he's not less than a good teacher? What if he's so much more? This account that we come to uh, in this second gospel in the New Testament, a gospel being kind of a, a, a life of Jesus. Uh, the genre of this literature is, uh, was understood at the time as being a bios, the Greek word for life. And they wouldn't write biography in the same ways that we would today with our conventions of writing. But within the style of the day, uh, people would have recognized this as a bios, uh, a presentation of a historical life so that those who read could learn the meaning of this life. And as we come to this point uh, of our account today in Mark's gospel, 
a lot has already happened. This letter was maybe written uh, at, at kind of closest date to Jesus' life, maybe 20 years. At maximum, kind of 40 years would be the, the maximum uh, time away from Jesus' death that it was written. So really close to his life, historically. And by this point, Jesus has been baptized. And Mark claims that there was a voice from heaven that said, This is my son. You're my son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus goes out preaching, uh, uh, Mark tells us. And interestingly, he doesn't begin with kind of a, a teaching about ethics or how we should live. The first chapter of Mark's gospel says Jesus' teaching could be summed up like this. After John was put in prison, Jesus, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And here to Mark is the essence of Jesus' teaching. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So he's teaching. He's up in the area of Capernaum, which is uh, just north of the Sea of Galilee, kind of in northern Israel. And he enters into a synagogue uh, where the Jewish people would have been gathered to worship. And there's a man in this synagogue who has a demon, an unclean spirit. And the demon speaks out and says, Jesus, you are the Holy One of God. We know who you are. And Jesus tells the demon to be quiet and cast the evil spirit out. And this man is healed. I guess one of Jesus' disciples, Simon Peter, his mother-in-law lived in the same city in Capernaum. And they, he goes into his mother-in-law's house, Peter's mother-in-law's house. She has a fever. And Jesus takes her by the hand and, and raises, raises her hand up. And she rises up out of the bed healed. So these early writers, they knew the difference between someone who was sick and someone who had a demon. More, they were more sophisticated than maybe we give them credit for. And then Jesus goes out and prays in a solitary place by himself. And then he comes back and a man with leprosy comes to Jesus and asks, if you're willing, heal me. And Jesus, Jesus wonderfully heals him and he's made clean. And then we come uh, to this part of, in the account here. Jesus had told the healed leper, please keep this quiet. If you go around telling everyone about it, the crowds will mount and I won't have anywhere to go. But he, he goes and he tells everyone about what Jesus has done. And the crowds mount. And Jesus has to leave Capernaum for a few days. And then he comes back and he, he sneaks into this house. We don't know whose house it is, but he's in this house and people get word that he's there. And they start to gather around the place. And Jesus is teaching from the center of the house. And the place is packed, maybe 50 people packed inside this home. And people are gathered outside the, the door, kind of trying to listen in, maybe listening in. Maybe there were some windows that they were listening through as Jesus is teaching. And we're told in verse 2, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So maybe he's preaching this word about the kingdom of God. That uh, God's kingdom is coming and we need to repent and turn from our sin and turn from God. Good news, you have this, the chance to do this. And so he's preaching this word and all of a sudden there's maybe a bit of a rustling outside the room. And as we encounter this story, this account in Jesus' historical life, I guess there's three things that I want us to see that point us to that Jesus is not less than a, a good teacher but more. 
First there's the miracle, then there's the man, and then there's the message. The miracle, the man, the message. And now we come, first of all, to the, to the miracle. They hear the rustling outside the door, and uh, clearly someone's trying to get in, but the, ah, people kind of shove and, and push, and they, and they can't, so someone's turned away. And in, in those houses, in those times in Palestine, there would be a flat roof above, and usually there'd be a staircase external to the house, which would help you get up to the roof, so you could hang clothes up there, or grow a small garden up there, whatever it might be. And now as Jesus is trying to teach, after the rustling of the door, they hear this, the stairs up the steps. And everyone begins to kind of look over to where the staircase was on the other side of the wall, and they're wondering, what on earth is going on? Jesus tries to continue teaching. And then all of a sudden, they hear this kind of uh, scraping and, 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 and uh, uh, kind of grumbling into the roof above Jesus' head. At that time, the, the roof would have been wooden beams and wooden branches, and then uh, clay would have been thickly laid over those branches, and the sun would have dried it out, and it would have become hard, and you could walk on it. But you could also, with enough determination, break through the clay, push aside the branches, and create a big hole. Imagine Jesus trying to teach. <laughs> what do you think was the expression on his face? I imagine Jesus had a great big smile, you know? These guys, bless them, whatever they're up to. Uh, and and it, surely the crowd must have started laughing as the, as the roof was opened and debris started falling and Jesus is, is brushing himself off. Uh, and, and these four men lower their friend on a mat through the open roof. And Jesus, at that point, seeing the faith of these five men doing this extraordinary act, says... To the man on the mat, the paralyzed man, friend, son, your sins are forgiven. Some teachers of the law are in the room. They have front row seats to what Jesus uh, is saying. And they immediately start thinking in their own hearts, who is this one who says that he can forgive sins? Only God can do that. They're, they're not saying it aloud to one another, but they're, they're saying it in their hearts. They're thinking it. And Jesus intuits in his own spirit that they're thinking that. And then he says, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and walk? Or your sins are forgiven? Now I guess to say that someone's sins are forgiven is easy to say, but it's harder to do. Because only God can do that. If you say to the paralyzed man, get up and take your mat and walk, well, that's easy to say, but it's very, very hard to do. And so Jesus seems to be saying, it's actually harder for me to forgive someone's sins than it is for me to heal them. But that you might know that I have authority to, he to forgive this man's sins, I will heal him. And so he says to the man, I tell you, get up. Take your mat and go home. And imagine, sit yourself in that room, sunlight peering through that open hole, those four men kind of peering in with the dust particles still hanging in the air. This man laid before Jesus on a mat, and Jesus tells the paralyzed man to get up, and he gets up. And he rolls up the mat that he was laid upon, and he walks out of the house and obeys Jesus' words to go home. 
Well, it's no wonder that we're told this amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Note that the claim isn't that people in this time saw miracles like this Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or one week in a given month or one month in a given year. The claim is that around Jesus, there was a cluster of miracles that were so exceptional that it drew massive crowds to him. That's the claim. And that's not a claim that was disputed by people who were contemporary to Jesus or slightly after him, uh, but nonetheless did not count themselves as Christians. That point about him being a miracle worker wasn't disputed by the Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote at the end of the uh, first century. This is what he said about Jesus, and again, he's not a Christian. But note how he accepts the fact that Jesus did great miracles. There was, in those times, Jesus, a wise man, if it really is right to call him a man. He was the doer of miraculous works and the teacher of men who gladly hear things that are true. He joined to him many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles, and he was called the Christ. Now, that's a conservative uh, translation of uh, Josephus's words. Some think that it says, Josephus says, he was, call, he was the Christ. But let's just say it says he was called the Christ. He, he's still assumed by this non-Christian historian to have done miracles like the one we read today. Josephus wouldn't have had a problem like that. Our current cultural kind of suspicion about whether or not the miraculous can exist it comes, of course, from the Enlightenment, which took place, and, and the scientific revolution that we've experienced, and the common belief that we can't uh, uh, believe in the miraculous and believe in, in the, the deliverances of science at the same time. So we've got to go with science. And therefore, the primary reason people suspect whether these Gospels can be historical is that they contain the miraculous. But for Josephus, that would have been no reason to doubt them thinking that the scientific method can show us all that exists is a great mistake for sure. Science helps us so powerfully explore the natural world, but it can't help us determine whether there's anything more than the natural world because its focus and its limits are, are constrained to the natural world. And so there's no fundamental reason why we can at one of the same time celebrate the good gifts of science and believe in the miraculous. Whether we believe in the miraculous will not depend on whether we trust science. It will, it will depend ultimately on whether we believe there's a God who made the natural world. And if there is a God who made the natural world, then of course we can explore that nature with the intelligence that he's given us and our observation and see something of his glory within it through science. And we can know that God at times will kind of break from his natural, usual way of doing things and do something extraordinary that he doesn't usually do, and those aren't incompatible with one another. So the miracle of this paralyzed man walking, imagine his joy. Imagine when he came home to his family. Imagine the jubilation in his town. 
But the most radical claim that this uh, account makes about Jesus is not actually that Jesus did miracles. That wasn't a controversial claim. The miracle actually is a sign pointing to something else. Um, Julie and I are currently having some uh, visa troubles as Canadians trying to be able to stay in the United Kingdom. And uh, so we currently have to remain in the UK uh, while our application is being assessed. It's a very exciting thing dealing with with the Home Office. And uh, I commend it to you. It'll just make your life really interesting, you know? Um, so anyways, my son wants to go in the summer on this big bike trip uh, over with a friend in, in Switzerland. And as you can imagine, his mom is very excited about this, my 16-year-old son, on this bike trip with a, with a friend. And uh, thankfully, uh, it's not wise to say to your wife, well, I did far worse things when I was 16. But because of this visa issue, we think we'll have to stay in the UK for a holiday. And so you're glad about that here. So we're thinking, we're thinking of going up to Sheffield. Have you been? Uh, uh, there's a house we can swap with in Sheffield. I don't know why you laugh. Sheffield's a beautiful place, right? The lakes are near and so on. But imagine if, if I kind of compromise with my son and say, okay, we'll do a cycling trip, but we're going to ride up to Sheffield together. Okay? And we get on our bikes and we cycle to Sheffield. And we come to that sign that surely is outside the city of Sheffield. I don't know whether it's an extraordinary sign or not, but it likely says, welcome to Sheffield, doesn't it? And imagine as we cycled along, if we pulled alongside that sign and we took a picture of ourselves with uh, the the great Sheffield sign. And uh, we then uh, put the phone in the pocket, uh, got back on our bikes, and didn't go into Sheffield, but turned around and went back to Oxford. We'd kind of miss the point of the sign, wouldn't we? The purpose of the sign is to welcome us into Sheffield so that we can go in and discover its manifold glories, right? And we can explore it and we can be a part of it. We can meet some of its people. The purpose of the sign is to welcome us beyond the sign into something deeper. And the purpose of this miracle that Jesus does with this man and indeed with all the miracles that he did, was to invite us beyond the sign itself. That's why it's a mistake to get caught up in questions as to whether and why doesn't Jesus do this more today. And Well, they clustered around his life. They can happen today, but they clustered around his life because he was trying to speak to who he was through them. The miracle welcomes us, secondly, to the man, to who Jesus is, and his authority. By this point in the gospel, Mark has called him the Son of God. From Mark chapter 1, verse 1. At his baptism in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, we hear the voice of God spoken over him saying, You are my Son, with whom I'm well pleased. When the demon is cast out, In the synagogue, the demon knows and says, you are the Holy One of God. And when we come to this account, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. That was his favorite title for himself. And the Son of Man, you might think, simply means that he's a mortal like other mortals, but that would be a mistake. Because that Son of Man title came from the Old Testament in a book called Daniel chapter 7, where there's this vision that Daniel has of this Son of Man who is a a glorious king and whose kingdom never, ever ends. And then, 
Jesus claims that he can forgive this man's sins. He says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And in saying that, he's not saying, you and I have had a bit of a spat. You've hurt me, you've done something wrong to me, and so I forgive your sins that you've committed against me, Jesus. No, he's saying, all of your sins are wiped clean. All of your sins have been forgiven. That Jesus didn't know the man. The man probably never had opportunity to ever sin against Jesus in Jesus' human life. But he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And wipes the whole, he claims to be able to wipe the whole slate clean for this man. And that's why these teachers of the law start to whisper in their hearts, blasphemy. Only God can do that. Who does this man think he is? Um, I, ha I have a house full of teenagers. It's wonderful. And I have two, two daughters. And just so you know what was happening in my house last night, I was trying to go to sleep around 10 a.m., 10 p.m., sorry. And uh, I heard one daughter say to the other, Shut up! You know? No, you shut up! Was the next. And imagine if I walked up into that conflict and I said to the, the one daughter who'd been offended by the other, Abigail, I've, I've forgiven Anna's sins, you know. Do you think that Abby would be really impressed with that argument on my behalf? Don't worry, Abby. She's been forgiven. Abby would be saying, it's not your place to forgive her on my behalf. And yet this is what Jesus does. Maybe there are people in the room who've been offended by this man. And, and Jesus wipes his whole slate clean. And they're wondering, how can he do that? Well, the sign points to the man, and that the man is not just a man. He's fully man, but he's doing something in this account that only God can do. He's fully man, and he's fully God. It's an absolutely extraordinary claim Jesus is making through this act of forgiving this man. And so he puts us, Jesus puts us in a difficult spot. He makes it really hard to say, Jesus, I like your ethical teaching, but you're a great teacher among many other great teachers. Because of the incredible claims that he made about himself. And this is only just one of many, many, many throughout the Gospels. As I mentioned, my mom has had a horrible mental illness, and she's still institutionalized, and so I've... It, well, it really is a privilege to be able to go onto psychiatric wards and to be able to talk with those people there. And they're often in such need of kind of relational attention and people listening to them. And so it's been, I've loved having the opportunity to go in and meet my mom, and then, but then to meet others who have real psychiatric disabilities. And one of the things that you'll just hear if you've ever been in a psychiatric ward is people making grandiose claims about themselves. My mom at times has told me that she is God or that she is Jesus. Others have said that they're Julius Caesar or some other great figure of history. And usually when someone makes grandiose claims about themselves like that, and we can see the disconnect between that claim and their life, we know that something's wrong. And it's, it's really tragic. It doesn't inspire us to follow, to listen to their wider teaching. 
to appreciate the acts of their life. The great uh, rock star Bono of U2, if you you needed someone of authority to speak profoundly, said this uh, about Jesus. When people say, you know, good teacher, prophet, really nice guy, this is not how Jesus thought of himself. So you're left with a challenge in that, well, which is, either Jesus was who he said he was, or a complete and utter nutcase. You have to make a choice on that, Bono said. So the miracle points us to the man, and the man has a message for us. And yes, he he taught incredibly about self-sacrificial love. And he taught us to love our neighbor as ourselves, and to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. But that actually wasn't the center of Jesus' teaching. The center of his teaching, we might not understand as as a heart of love, though he did speak a lot about love. His teaching can more accurately be summed up by a crown. Imagine a crown. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's the essence of Jesus' teaching. Not so much that we have to do something, but that God has and is doing something. Not that we have to shore up our moral bootstraps and get on with living a better life, but that God has sent his son to become human, to be the king of the world. And so we need to repent or turn from being our own king or having other gods apart from him. And we need to turn from the sin of doing that. And we have the privilege of trusting in him and having him as our king. And that's closer to the heart of Jesus' teaching. And we see that in what he says to the paralyzed man. Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus' message seems to be that at the heart of what I need... And the heart of what you need is forgiveness. And you, like me, can look through the orbit of your life and you can see all sorts of problems and pains and wrongs that are really big and heavy, like the thing with the home office. And you take it to Jesus and you think, well, Jesus, this is the main thing that I need you to sort out right now. Could you just talk to Rishi and get him to release Andy's visa? You know, Can you sort out this problem? And Jesus says, your faith in me leads me to forgive you of your sins. And that's the most important thing. Back at the end of last year, I was a bit sick. And uh, my, uh, my wife kept urging me to go to the doctor. I was having these chest pains uh, when I woke up in the morning. And um, I, th- I thought, you know, I just need to get in better shape. I've been stressed. I don't need to go see the doctor. So my, but my wife persisted, and she takes me to the doctor. And it's an embarrassing thing, you know. She finally said, okay, you make the appointment, sweetie. We'll go. And so we go to the doctor together, my wife and I, and uh, we're, talking about, uh, we're talking about these pains, and I'm feeling a bit embarrassed, you know? I kind of feel like I'm the used car, and my, my wife is the owner of the used car, taking it to, like, the used car sales lot, you know? And the, the owner of the used car sales lot is looking at the car, and he's kind of, you know, that's a sturdy enough build, you know? He's kicking the bulging tires, you know, looking under the hood, and this is how I'm feeling. 
and uh, a bit exposed. And the doctor says, he's a great doctor, he says to me, so, um, Andy, how's your stress? And I just think to myself, the nerve, you know, the nerve. Here, here I want him to focus on these chest pains. And now he's acting, trying to be a psychiatrist. The nerve, how's your stress? You know. But imagine if I came into the doctor's uh, office and instead of saying, Andy, how's your stress? He said, Andy, your stress is removed from you. You know. I would say, the nerve. You know. How, how could you pretend to be able to take away all my... Do you not know how stressed I am? You can't just say you can take away my stress. But here, this is what Jesus is being able to claim, claiming to be able to do. To forgive our sins. To, with a word, take away our guilt. He's saying, here is a, the message is, this is the heart of your need. Forgiveness for sins you've committed against God and others. And I can take that away. If you trust in me, if you have faith like these friends and this man did, I can take that guilt away. It's your deepest need. Andy. And the religious leaders were right to be upset by this. They knew only God could do it, but they also knew that sacrifice had to be made in order for sins to be forgiven. And as Mark's gospel marches on, we see that this Son of God made fully human would go on not to point to another sacrifice that would cover the sins and allow him to forgive, but to be that sacrifice to give up us innocent, spotless, fully obedient to God life on a cross, and then to go into that grave, passing through judgment and death for us, so that if anyone would believe in him, having risen from the dead, they could be forgiven and made right with God and have the basis to forgive and know others, forgive others and be reconciled to them too. That's the invitation of the miracle the man, and this message, the invitation is, you can come to Jesus and know forgiveness and know that burden of guilt lifted by having a personal trust in Jesus and his death on your behalf. I invite you to consider that. And if you're here and you're exploring this and this is all rather new to you, you might, you might consider that Hope Explored course which begins on Tuesday night. Or you might consider that it was friends who ultimately were able to bring the man to Jesus. And you might look around and say, who are the friends in your orbit that could help you explore Jesus and ask them to help you do that if you're interested? I bet you they will be very keen to. Friends, I'm going to pray, uh, and then we're going to have a chance to respond in song. Thank you that we heard the voice of Jesus say, come to me and find life. And I pray as we close this service, God, that you would be speaking, Jesus, that you yourself would be speaking and be inviting us to come to you for forgiveness and new life. In your name we pray, Jesus.